morning, everyone. I know COVID is sweeping through here and other things are going on, but it's good. David said it is good to be in the house of the Lord, and it is good. And Father, we thank, thank you for everyone that's here. We thank you for those that are watching online. We haven't forgot about you guys. We're glad you're joining in with us. We're looking through the Gospel of John. We're in the second chapter. A great gospel. The Gospel of John. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says this. Now faith is the substance, the substructure, the foundation of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. And I read that because we're going to look in the second chapter of the book of John, sign faith, the showing or giving of signs is less valuable than faith that merely responds to the Spirit's witness. John chapter 20 verse 29 tells us this. Jesus said to him in the upper room, not in the upper room, but when they're gathered together, Jesus just comes through the walls. I can't wait till I have that glorified body so I can just walk through walls and things. Thomas is sitting there with the rest of the disciples. And he says this, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Sign faith is nevertheless better than no faith at all. So in verses 1 through 11, disciples, as we found out in chapter 1, they've already given their lives to the Lord. They've already believed. But they're going to come into a new level of faith through the signs Jesus will wrath in this chapter. So verse 1 tells us, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And everybody wonders about this third day. They try to put it in order with, was it, do you start counting when Nathaniel was born again or were saved at this time? And they're not sure. It could be Sunday. We do know they're going to this wedding in Cana. And if you were a virgin, you were married on the fourth day. That would be Wednesday. If you were a widow and were remarrying, well, you got married on the fifth day, which was Thursday. Now, if you were not a virgin or a widow, you just quietly went and got married. So those were the two days that they celebrated and had these great wedding feasts that's well known in the Jewish faith. So this is a public celebration here. Servants are involved. A wealthy person might give the whole town, invite the whole town to a wedding feast, a wedding banquet. It's significant to see Jesus coming to this wedding and we know, after all, he was the one who instituted, mar instituted marriage. The marriage ceremony usually lasted about seven days. That would be nice if that, we could still do that. And we know the account. The groom would, with a procession, after he's built a room probably onto his father's home, he goes to get his bride. The bride and her maids have to have oil in their lamps because they don't know the day or the hour 
that the bridegroom is coming. Jesus used this description for his parable of the ten virgins. Then after the groom collects his bride, they would return to the father's house. And the bride and groom was set up under something they would call a hoopah. It was like a canopy with garlands and flowers surrounding them. And then the wedding contract would be read and signed. And then that addition that he had built onto his father's house, they would go in there and consummate the marriage. They would be together and share intimacy for those seven days. And at the end of those seven days, they would come out and he would present his bride publicly to them. And we know it's a wonderful picture of the Lord, the bridegroom coming from, for his church. Hidden away, I believe, for seven days or seven years as the tribulation period is taking place on this earth. And then he gets his bride and we come back down to the earth for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So it's a great picture of that. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you're getting married, I would beg you to invite Jesus Christ to the marriage. You'd better do that. Because marriage is hard, especially these days. Odds are, Secular marriages, they say 48% to 50% after the first 10 years, half are divorced. So we need to invite Jesus into the marriage. Marriage was very different in this culture. It was a covenant. It was a legal covenant. It was a civil covenant. And it was, of course, a religious covenant. And so it should be today. You stand before God and witnesses. And Jesus endorses all of this because he's coming to this wedding. He's there with his disciples. At this point, probably Joseph has passed away. So Jesus comes. Mary, we will find out. His mom is there. But he comes with his disciples. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, Nathaniel's hometown. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the weddings. Most scholars think during this tradition, if, if you were a teacher or a rabbi and you had followers, you had your disciples, wherever you'd go, they would go. But we read here that Jesus was already invited and so were these five guys here. Verse three tells us, and when they ran out of wine, that's not good. The mother of Jesus said to him, I don't know if they had mingled, they had spoken before she confronts Jesus right here. The scripture doesn't tell us that. But she comes to him and lets Jesus know they have no wine. Now, rabbinic writings say, it's not good, but you could run out of food. That wasn't good. But to run out of wine was terrible. You couldn't live that down. There would be a stigma over the, the bridegroom and the wedding 
the whole for, for probably a lifetime. So this would be a stigma on this family if this was allowed to happen. There was a humiliation attached to this. So Mary comes to Jesus. She feels she has the right. That's, that's her son. And says, they have no wine. Why make Jesus aware of this? What is Mary asking him? The Bible tells us that this will be Jesus's first miracle. You best believe and understand that Mary, the mother of Jesus, wasn't married on the third day. No, she wasn't. And that's part of the problem right here. Mary has this sort of stigma in her life because you know all of the whispering. Mary says she, she <clears throat> had this child without conception of a man involved. That was going around. You know, I love these so-called apocryphal uh, gospels. They make me laugh. They talk about Jesus when he was uh, in his so-called wonderful twos. We know them as terrible twos, but Jesus is wonderful twos. They said when Jesus, one of the gospels says when he was lying in the manger, he speaks and says, I am the logos, the word of God. <laughs> I don't think so. The Bible says this will be Jesus Christ's first miracle. The scripture tells us this, turning water to wine. So what does Mary expect of him right now? Show them, son. Show them who you really are, and you can exonerate me in the process also. Because I believe her name in circles were mud at this time. Now, as we look at what Jesus says, his words aren't cold. But he doesn't say mother or mom. He calls her woman. You know, I might can get away with calling, calling my mom woman and she knows I'm joking. But if, woman, what do you mean by that? I would be picking myself up off the floor. <laughs> that word woman is gune. It's respectful, but it's not the natural word that he uses here. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me. Literally, he says, what is there between you and me in regards to this situation? Then he tells her, my hour has not yet come. What is Jesus saying here? I believe he's saying, don't you remember, mom, when you guys were about two days, two and a half days out, and you discovered that I wasn't with you and you had to turn back around and come back and you and you when you found me I was talking to the religious leaders and questioning them at the age of 12 and I spoke to you and you should have known I was about my father's business well it's the same thing here now Mary doesn't understand that what she's insinuating for him to do this will start this will begin to roll out his hour, because once again, this is his first miracle. He's been on this earth at this time approximately about 30 years, and he begins, he's beginning his public ministry here. 
But his hour belongs to his father's schedule. That's what he's wanting Mary to know. All Mary wants, I believe, is her name cleared. And Jesus understands that. I know, I know, I understand. It will be cleared, but it will be cleared in my father's timing. We will hear Jesus say, my hour is not yet come seven times in John's gospel. Here, and then he says it in chapter 7, verse 6. He says it in verse 30 of that same chapter. He says it in verse chapter 8, 20, 12, 23, 13, 1. And then as he begins his high priestly prayer in chapter 17, when he begins to pray to the Father, he finally says in that garden of Gethsemane, my hour has come. And we know that he's not speaking of 60 minutes or hour, but this stage The reason why God has become a man and come to earth. It's about to take fruition here. And Jesus is keenly aware of his hour. Jesus knows exactly why he has come down here. The book of Ephesians tells us he's given every one of his believers their own poema, their own walk that they must walk. We need to understand that we're down here for a reason. And it's to stay in the Father's will, stay in his lane, which is our lane, where things are best for us, even though it may not look like it at times. But if we just stick to his will, the road he has given us, it will turn out for the best. Jesus knows this. That's why he's not bothered with what everyone else is saying. Do this, do that. He says, no, I'm on a timetable. I'm in the Father's will, and I know what's best for me if I stay in the Father's will. It isn't up to my mom to point the finger and tell me to do this or that. Mary says, what is this? Jesus says, what is this between you and me. This is my father's business now, and he is directing my hour. He's ordering my steps. Now, quickly, let me say something. When Mary tells Jesus they have no wine, they say she shows the Jewish word is chuspah. One one scholar says holy chuspah of faith. And I'm reminded of that bold faith of Mary when a a Lazarus has passed away and she runs to Jesus. And it says in John chapter 11, verse 32 and 33, then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping as if she's moving him to do something that he wasn't going to do anyway. That's what Mary is saying. And the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? Jesus knew what he was going to do anyway. That's why he lingered two more days before he began to move. 
One rabbinic tradition, and I fell in love when I read this with this, it tells of a woman, they were married, husband and wife, but the woman couldn't bear him any kids. And before he sent her back home to her parents' house, he says, you know, I really hate this. I love you, but I want kids. So anything you want in my house, you can take with you. No matter how valuable it is, this is how much I hate it. You can take it with you. The lady proceeded to get him drunk. And when he was drunk, the tradition says she got some men to tie him up and carry him to her parents' home. And when he woke up, he says, what am I doing here? She said, you told me I could take the most valuable thing in your home back to my house. And it was you. That's amazing. That's how much she wanted to have children. And that's how much Mary wanted to be exonerated, knowing that she was a virgin. And she was the vehicle that brought Jesus Christ into the world. That's how much sometimes we think or we know we want things. And we're praying, Lord, why don't you move? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And the Lord just sits there and waits until his perfect timing or until our will, while we pray, catches up to his will, his perfect timing. That's what's going on here. So Mary, she does show boldness, but God was going to work anyway. And regardless of what Mary says after she says whatever he says, do it. She does something that we all should do as believers. When we're finished praying, we leave it at the feet of Jesus Christ because what he does is best. She says in verse five, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. These are the last recorded words of Mary. And because of the way Mary has been deified, that some people speak of the perpetual virginity of Mary, even though she had several more kids after Jesus. They say now, Mary is spoken of, of a co-redemptress with Jesus Christ. I couldn't pull it up. I've got to find it. But I've heard of some people say on one side of the cross, they have Jesus Christ. And on the other side of the cross, Mary is hanging there as a co-redemptress. All of this out of Catholicism. Mary needed Jesus just as much as any of us. She needed repentance and salvation that came through her son also. She says, whatever he says to you, do it. Jesus will say in Matthew 12, 49 through 50, he says, here, as he's speaking, he says, here are my mother and my brother's for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We find Mary, she will be in the upper room at the feast of Pentecost as one of Jesus's disciples in Acts 1.14. It says, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary. And the Holy Spirit lets us know the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. We don't find her elevated in the scriptures. 
and she shouldn't be. Yes, she's blessed of all women. We know that because Jesus, the father used her, but that's all. Verse six tells us, now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Those are big jars. These water part, pots, they were used for water purification. They would wash their hands with these. They would wash the utensils, the dishes, all of those things with this water. That's going to be very important. Mark says this in chapter 7, verse 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands. They would wash their hands a certain way. Jesus will work this miracle very quietly. They really won't know who did this miracle besides the servants and those that were watching. He says in verse seven, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. Now listen to this. And they filled them up to the brims. So the servants who drew the water knew what was happening, but no one else did. The servants are co-laborers with Jesus here. And one thing I know about when you're serving and you're serving along Jesus Christ, you get to see insight. You get different perspectives because you're right there. You're not serving alone. You're right there serving with him. And that's an advantageous position to be in when you're serving along Jesus Christ. You get those blessings. You get those benefits. And that's what's going to happen here. Now, we just read in verse 17 of chapter 1, the law was given through Moses. Notice once again, the law was given but grace and truth, intimate, intimacy came through Jesus Christ. Remember, Moses' first miracle was turning water to blood. Christ's first miracle was taking water that was for legal ceremonial washing under the law and turning it to wine. Moses' first miracle spoke of judgment. Jesus' first miracle speaks of joy and fulfillment. That's what he wants for his children, no matter the situation, no matter the circumstance. What Israel had run out of, Jesus provides here. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now. And take it to the master of the feast, the head waiter. And they took it. My question is, when did the wine, the water change to wine? Did it change when they filled up the water jars? When they scooped it out and gave it to the head waiter? Or when he placed it in his mouth? Where in the place, where is the place of obedience? Does the miracle take place? That's not for us to know. All the Lord has called us to is to obey. I'm reminded of the man in the synagogue with the withered hand. Jesus looked around, became angry, and he said, stretch out your hand. And we know as he stretched out his hand, 
it became whole. So the miracle happens as we're walking in obedience to the word of God. Now, some think, and I tend to agree with it right here. In verse 8, if you have a new King James, it says, draw some out now. He says, and take it to the master of the feast. Some is in italics. So they're trying to help us out there. He really says, draw out now. And the common view is what I just said, that the six water pots, most people think those six water pots is where the wine was. And they drew out from the water pot. But that word draw, as he says at first, is a verb and it's called, the Greek word is leo. And it naturally implies drawing water from a well. That's the word he uses. The noun ma means to draw with something. I'll give you an example of drawing with something. Uh, the woman at the well, when Jesus confronted her, John 4.11 says this. The woman said to him, speaking to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to ma to draw with. That's exactly what she says. And the well is deep. Now think with me. What happened to the jars for the ceremonial cleansing, the ceremonial washing? There were six there. Surely they didn't pull water from there and give for the wine because people were still drinking. I believe they're right. They put the six jars there for ceremonial cleansing and they drew water from the well. And that was where they got the wine. Either way, what Jesus is saying, these six water pots, this is the picture. They were filled to the brim. The new, the old order, the old covenant has come to completion. It's come to its end. It's full. The new order has arrived. This water from the well is Jesus Christ. So the old order the old covenant has come to completion. It's did its job. There's a new order that's here now. There's a new covenant that I'm going to give out now. And that's living water. That's a living spirit. That's Jesus Christ. And that's what these six water pots, in my opinion, stands for. And that's what Jesus does here. That's why I don't think they drew from the six water pots because they were filled and they still had to wash utensils. They still had their wash hands. They had to do all of those things. Verse nine tells us, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. He's gonna take credit here. And he said to him, every man at the beginning, not some, not most. He says, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. What he's saying, he says, now, you know, I do a lot of these galas. I do a lot of marriage feasts here. And they always put the good wine out first. That word wine on us is the only word used for wine 
in the New Testament. I say this because some people like to say it was grape juice. No, it wasn't grape juice. It was wine. The head waiter, when he tasted it, he says, it's wine. So it was wine here. That's why he's so confused, the head waiter, because he knows that the world doesn't operate that way. Not the world. Because the world likes to sweeten your taste, wets your appetite first. And then when you are inebriated, when you don't care at that moment what you're doing or the results that might occur while you're doing them and while you're in that drunken stupor, go for it. Do whatever you want now. I'm reminded, I, t- I told you guys when I was at, went to uh, West Georgia College, it was called college at that time. It's university now. Never touched a drink of alcohol. I was a sports guy. Never thought about it. But I was very shy. So my, the coolest dude I ever met just happened to be my roommate. Still know his name, Marcus Moses from Atlanta. I'm a country boy from Lawrenceville, Georgia. Hip, cool, everything I wanted to be, I thought. He says, come on, you need to go to the party at the rec center. And I said, okay, I'll go. After he begged me for a minute, I went. And I was just the wallflower. Stood against the wall while they danced, while they drank. Next week, come on, Vic, let's go. He says, and Vic, you don't talk to girls, so I'm going to give you something. So it introduced me to my first beer. I drank the beer I guess I talked to the girls because I'm shy, but that first drink led me on a 20-year journey of DUIs, of just getting drunk all the time, habitual violator, all of those things from that first drink, all because I thought that would help me talk to girls and be cool. This is wine right here. We have to be careful right here. Hebrews talks about the passing pleasure of sin, of sexual sin. Proverbs 9, verse 17 and 18 says this, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of of hell. The world promises all kinds of things, but it just can't deliver. So this head waiter is shocked because it is the opposite of the way that unregenerate humanity does things. They put out the good stuff first, trying to impress everybody. They've bought some expensive wine here. And when everybody else is a little wasted and it's not about the taste anymore, here comes the Mad Dog 2020. You guys probably don't know what that is, but I do. But here here, here it comes right here. You don't care. One more quick story. When I I made it back home after I think it was my, uh, my first summer out of West Georgia College, I, when I went back to my hometown, Vic, I don't know how they found out. Vic, I heard you drink now. Vic, I heard you do this now. For the first month and a half, it's amazing. I didn't have to buy one beer. I didn't have to buy one Mad Dog 2020. It was given to me. But once again, 
after it began to rot, okay, we've been given to you. I began to buy my own and all, all other stuff with it. That's how the world operates. It wets your taste. It sweetens your taste. But in the end, it wants to devour you. That's why this head waiter is so blown away that the, the, the best wine has been kept to the end. Jesus Christ, he saves the best wine till last. And it's all because Christ is in charge of this situation right here. And he saves the best wine for last. Whatever compromise, whatever sin that we are struggling to give up, whatever lifestyle that we've convinced ourselves is okay, it's just a little porn here, a little abusive speech to my spouse there. It's just a little gossip, and I like having the goods on others. It's not that bad. Oh, it's just a little fudging on my taxes. It's just a little kissing, hugging, loving, squeezing. I got that from Steve Perry in Journey. I was a Journey fan and still am a little bit. So, so it's okay because we're going to get married anyway. God winks at that. I can't find it in the scriptures. God doesn't wink at sin. Sin is sin. Whatever joy we have in our families, you guys, whatever love we experience amongst believers at a worship service, whatever love we have in our marriages, no matter how much joy we may find in those things, whatever thrills us more than anything, we ain't seen nothing yet. Jesus saves the best for last. So that reminds me, and I'm wanting you to understand, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life right now. As long as you're a believer, God is in control. He saves the best for last. So continue to walk. Continue to have confidence in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, knowing that you're in the lane that he's placed you in and everything is going to be all right. So he turns to the water. He turns this water into wine. I want to say this. The Bible does not prohibit drinking. The Bible prohibits getting drunk. I just said this. One out of 10, maybe it's one out of 15, of every person who has a first drink of an alcoholic beverage, they become an alcoholic. One out of 10 or one out of 15. And I think of playing Russian roulette. Say it has 10 uh, chambers and one bullet is in there. Would you take those odds? I wouldn't. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 through 9. But food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block. That's what the Lord doesn't want to those who are weak. We should never live in such a way that our liberty 
would stumble someone. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me. We love to use that. But all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says, therefore, in a nutshell, therefore, whether you eat or drink or where, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what it's about. We have a responsibility. When we see how destructive drugs and alcohol are and is in our culture, we should be wise about those things. It says for every ounce of alcohol you drink, you use up or you destroy 10,000 dendrites. Now, I know I don't even know what dendrites are, but they must be important. But I know we have billions of dendrites. But for me, I need all the dendrites I can use. And I'm sure you do too. So remember that. Jesus makes this wine for this wedding celebration. And then he says in verse 11, the beginning, this is very important. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And manifested his glory. That's why he's come. He shows himself off. And his disciples, here it is, believed in him. They were amazed at what had taken place. I told you that John gives seven specific signs that everyone should see and say, behold, this is the Messiah. This is who he is. That's why he gives these signs, these, these miracles, because he wants them to understand who he is. He's the promised Messiah. After this, he went down to Capernaum, Kephar Nahum, the village of Nahum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. Jesus, we know, would establish his headquarters in Capernaum. Never been there. I, I hear it's a beautiful place. So he's got good taste also. It says, and they did not stay there many days. They didn't stay there long. And this is the reason why. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Whether you're, and they went down south. But anytime you hear, you, you read of going to Jerusalem, whether you're going up or whether you're going down spiritually, you always go up to Jerusalem, even though they were heading down south here. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold, notice he didn't turn over the doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. There were three mandatory feasts that every Jewish male had to attend once a year. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's, by this time, they had consolidated those together. The Feast of Weeks, also called Shavuot or Pentecost. And the Feast of Booths or Tabernacle or Sukkot. Now, this was, was happening in the first century. As Jesus makes his way to the temple, you have Annas and you have Caiaphas. And they had a scam going on 
at the temple precinct. Even though Annas, he wasn't the high priest at the time, but he was the ringleader. He was still in control of this kind of mafia crime syndicate that was going on. And this was the rub. If you brought your own animal, the priest would inspect it. No matter how brilliant it looked, they would find a flaw in it. And then they would use it later as you paid double for it. Then if you came from a great distance and you just had the money, you couldn't, you had to use a certain kind of coin. So you would have an exchange rate that you had to go through to get the temple shekel to purchase your lamb. And then they were paying, some theologians say they were paying seven to 10 times as much for these lambs. So they were making, they were, they were just getting over hand and fist, making a killing, making a living at this temple precinct. And these people were coming, some for the first time, coming to going to Jerusalem, going to the temple to worship God. And they have to jump through all of these hoops. And by that time, you're upset. There, it's blasphemous things that's going on. And it's hard to worship God like that. Jesus knowing this. Jesus will cleanse the temple twice. This is his first time he does it. And I would say that Jesus is angry at this time. Anger is a God-given emotion. To be angry is not wrong. It's necessary. The Bible says, be angry and what? And sin not. That's the issue we have. Jesus himself was angry. He was angry right here. Sometimes anger is the proper emotion that we should have. We see abused children, sexually molested children being abused. We should be angry at those things. If we love, anger is necessary. We just don't want to punch holes through drywall. I mean, I hear people punching holes through draw, drywall. That's kind of tough. I've never did it. But I never hear them trying to punch holes through concrete block. They, they know enough not to do those things. Psalm 711 says this. God is angry with the wicked every day. That's that emotion. So Jesus is angry. Gentiles are supposed to be able to come and bring their hearts and bring their offerings. And right where they worship, you have all of this marketplace and they can't even worship the one true God the way they should. Jesus is upset. He says this, my father's house, you have made it a den of thieves. That's the second time he will say that. You know what? I think about all of the televangelists. They take their $500 sports jacket and hit someone with it. And they call them slain in the spirit, saying it's slain in the spirit. Or they're always asking for money as if God is not sufficient and he's not big enough to handle whatever finances issue we may have. He's big enough. They're a bunch of phonies. They're a bunch of hypocrites. And we know God hates hypocrites. And that's what's going on here. Remember, this was the feast of unleavened bread, getting ready for a Passover. Jesus goes in and he begins to turn over the money changers table. 
He begins to drive out the oxen and the sheep. What's going on in these Jewish homes, their sons and daughters at this time? They're going through the homes and they're clearing out, cleaning out the leaven in the house because their elder brother is doing the same thing right here. It's amazing how those things were. Jesus never asked us to do anything that he hasn't done. That's the man he is. He says in verse 17, then his disciples remembered that it was written, not then, probably after the resurrection. He says, zeal for your house has eaten us up. That's Psalm 69. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? They didn't ask, why are you doing this? They knew why he was doing this. They're asking him, what authority do you have to do this? Who gives you the authority? Tell me, who gives you this authority, Jesus? Just because I was born a male physically, that I shouldn't transition why shouldn't I be able to transition into a female? Who gives you the authority to say you shouldn't do those things? Who gives you the right to tell me that homosexuality is a sin? Of course, along with lying, sexual immorality, gossip, slander, all those other things. But who gives you the right to tell me those things? Who gives you the right to tell me Abortion is a sin. The word of God. That's who's standing in front of them then and there. And he still stands in front of believers today. They ask the king of kings and lord of lords, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, I believe he pointed at himself and he said, destroy this temple. The word he uses for temple as he points at himself is naos. He says, destroy this holy of holies. Because when he says it in verse 20, they says, this temple, it took 46 years to build. They're thinking, they're saying the word they use is the temple precinct, those 19 acres. But Jesus says, this naos, this holies of holies. And in three days, I will raise it up. Now to build that 19 acre precinct in three days, that would take a miracle. But we've read this so much, we kind of gloss over it. But when he says to raise this temple here, this holy of holies up in three days, that blows that 19 acres away for him to be able to do that. Jesus says, destroy this holy of holies. And in three days, I will raise it up. Verse 20, then the Jews says, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Josephus says, it was finally built around 63 AD, completed. But he was speaking, verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered, John is very honest, that he has said this to them, and they believed. What did they believe? They believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. 
Now, I want you to think back with me with chapter one. Chapter one, John is proclaiming, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world along with his disciples. Andrew hears it. Probably John, the apostle of love, was there. Andrew goes quickly and finds his brother, Peter. They go to Jesus. Jesus turns around. What are you seeking? Where are you staying? Jesus turns around and he says, come and see. They go spend the evening with Jesus. Andrew runs and gets Peter. As they're coming back, Philip, Jesus gathers Philip himself. And Philip goes and witnesses to Nathaniel. That's how it's done. And they are excited. And they bring up this wedding feast that's going to take place. And Jesus probably says, hey, I'm going to this wedding. You guys want to come along with me? And they go there. And they're just talking and they're having a grand time. And then Jesus' mom asks the question, hey, we're running out of wine. They see this miracle. They understand. And as they leave going to the temple precinct, those boys are all excited. Man, aren't you glad that the Lord called me? Andrew, I'm so happy that you would care enough for me, Peter says, to come get me. Nathaniel tells Philip, Philip, you could have grabbed anybody, but you came and witnessed to me. And I'm excited. And we're headed to the temple for the Passover. And as they get to the temple, I don't know what Jesus is thinking, but I know they're good thoughts. They see him begin to weave this whip these cords together. And all of a sudden, those five boys, his disciples at this time, what's he doing? What's going on here? And he begins to drive out the animals and turn over the tables. And by this time, I know if I was one of the five, I distanced myself from him a little bit. Who gives you the authority to do this? Are you his disciples? Uh, no, (laughs) no. They have a great paradigm shift at this moment. That's why he asked me, are you sure you want to follow me? Because every day is not going to be roses if you follow me. You're not going to be able to to react in any kind of way you want to if you're going to be my disciple. And so as they leave there, they're a little bit more sober. They begin to understand, hey, it's going to take something to follow this Messiah. I'm going to have to give up a few things to follow this Messiah. Do we want to do that, Peter? Yes, we want to do it. Peter's going to say, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. They've made up their minds. Have you made up yours this morning? And they become his disciples. It says in Malachi, as Jesus does this, chapter 3, verse 1, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's exactly what's just happened. So verses 23 and 25, what they do, they begin to build the bridge to Nicodemus. And we'll look at that next Sunday. But verse 23 says this, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, 
many believed in his name when they saw the signs. There they are again, which he did. Seven signs we spoke of last week. John points out that when you see these, surely you would believe this is the Messiah. The Bible speaks of Jesus did so many signs that books couldn't contain them all. So he was doing many miracles. And John picks out seven, pointing to who he is. In all four gospels, there's about 36 miracles. You divide that up, that's one miracle a month. That's what he's doing. And he's doing those that those that are lost may come to him and be saved from their sins. It says in John chapter 6, chapter 21, verse 25, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. That's how Nicodemus hears about Jesus. That's why when Jesus comes to Nicodemus, Nicodemus tells him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So verse 23, he says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, and when they saw the signs which he did, verse 24, but Jesus, what? notice what he says, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Take note of verse 23 when he says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believe. That word believe, he says, believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit. Those are the same words, commit and believe. The same exact words. But Jesus did not commit to them. What he's saying is, Many trusted him, but he didn't trust them. Many believed in him, but he did not commit himself to them. Really, that should set us free. The Bible speaks of God knows our frame, that we're nothing but dust. He knows our makeup. Yet, he's given us grace to believe in him. He's given us grace. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So he gives us that to believe in him. But he doesn't change his mind. He says, but I'm not committed. I know you. That's why he tells Peter here, track with me. When he sees Peter, he says, you are Simon. You shall be called Cephas. And you're you're going to see greater things. He knew them already. He knew Nathaniel when he was under the fig tree. He didn't commit himself. He knows what's in Nathaniel. He knows what's in us. He knows we drop the ball at times. He knows everyone that he chooses to inherit his kingdom. We're nothing but lemons. We're no classy cars. What are the nice ones? The the, the Rolls Royces and all those that they say never break down and all these things, we break down. We not not only break down physically, we break down spiritually. We drop the ball. 
And what the Lord is saying, I know who you are anyway, but I've chose you. I know you don't say everything right, Victor. I know uh, I can be short at times, Victor. I know after 6.30, 7 o'clock, Victor, you really get in moody ways. But I chose you anyway. And the reason I chose you, and the worship team can come up, you trusted in me. You don't have to be perfect. All you have to do is repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and by his grace, walk in those things. That sets me free. And, and, and I'm confident that he chose this lemon, but he knew what he was getting anyway. He loves this lemon. That, that takes the weight off me. It sets me free. I can continue to walk with him. I can continue to let him pour into me. I can continue to do all of the things saying, Lord, this is your vineyard. Thank you for giving me the privilege and the honor to work in it with you. I don't have the strength, but you're right beside me to give me everything I need. And you've given me the Holy Spirit to be able to communicate with you. And you give me the grace to fall in love with you every day. You just want a willing heart. You don't want a divided heart. You want a full heart that runs hard after you. I can do that. We can do that. It's about loving him. If we just love him, if we just pour ourselves into him, marriages would be better. Families would be better. At work would be better. All of those other things would be better because we have our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith. He's there. He knew those boys were, were afraid in the temple. He didn't say, y'all stay here. Y'all didn't take up for me. You, you didn't even come to my aid. He knew they, they weren't going to do that. He says, come on, boys. Let's go. Let's learn. Learn of me. And we should be going from glory, growing from glory to greater glory because we walk close with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all he asked for. That's all he wants. Let's stand and close with the song, then I'll pray at the end.